0: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.
1: This is Simon Rose. Uh, You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Now, Quite often when prime ministers leave uh, office, they sort of go into the wilderness and, you know, they long for a bit of exposure in the limelight again. Well, David Cameron's certainly getting a bit of exposure in the limelight, isn't
0: he? He is. And it's almost um, it's almost uh, a sort of blast from the past, really. We've been taken back in time 10 years to a speech that David Cameron made just before he became Prime Minister in 2010, in which he pledged to but he predicted rather presciently that lobbying would be the next big scandal in politics.
1: I have to say it's one of the few things I ever, he ever said that I thought, well, that's absolutely true. But clearly he doesn't listen to his own speechwriters.
0: Well, this I have I have to clarify. just say because I, I work in public affairs, I work in what would be termed as lobbying as my day job. So for me, there's there's it's hard not to be incredibly frustrated by David Cameron's conduct in this because although it is facetious to say that everybody lobbies government, and it's true that these sort of professional lobbying outfits are, you know, are available to a wide range of organizations, but it mm-hmm. does depend on largely larger demand on, on money as well and resources. But David Cameron's one isn't really about just money. It's also about access as well. And the lobbying industry as a whole holds itself to a higher standard than is expected of it from government. So I'm a member, for example, of the PRCA, which is the professional body for lobbying, and there's a very clear code of conduct there that states, for example, you must not employ anyone who has a parliamentary pass, or anybody who is a serving member of an elected assembly uh, except the councillors. So, and David Cameron as a former prime minister has a parliamentary pass and he has a contact book full of serving uh, ministers who only a few years ago were starting out under his uh, second government. So for example, Rishi Sunak who uh, was elected in 2015 when the Cameron majority uh, was won that election and uh, Matt Hancock who served in the cabinet with Mr Cameron at the tail end of his uh, second administration. So the Greensill row is about, yes, about the conduct of influencing lobbying as well and the professionalisation of that field and how accessible it is, but it's also been connected back by the Labour Party to an older theme, this question of what is broadly termed as sleaze. So we can all think of examples over the last 20, 30 years, going from cash for questions, through to cash for honors, all the way through to the expenses scandal, through to Peter Mandelson's loans uh, for high property, where politicians have been accused of feathering their own nests, and, or ex-politicians specifically. And at the heart of this appears to be uh, a real vacuum and no sense of boundaries from the political establishment about where the alliance should be drawn. So just to give you an example, the watchdog that is meant to advise MPs on top civil servants when they take up jobs in the private sector uh, is chaired by the former cabinet minister, Lord Eric Pickles. And he has said today, he is not sure that there should have been any boundaries at all. And the crucial thing is this, (laughs) this committee is only an advisory body. So David Cameron was required to seek advice on it, but not to follow it. And to me, one of the things that has to change is that ex-ministers have to have a much longer ban on taking jobs in lobbying outfits or external jobs where they could use their contacts and influence. Mm. It isn't just just politicians, of course. Civil servants as well
1: are often snapped up, particularly by businesses, because of the knowledge they have about how to you know, get things done in Whitehall. With politicians, of course, it's, as you point out, it's the contact book that's incredibly useful and the influence that they have. But presumably, if, uh, if they had no influence, then businesses wouldn't want to sign them up anyway. Yes. I mean, in some instances, perhaps, politicians are just so astute that they would be welcome additions to the board of a company for their brains alone. But we're assuming that the majority of the time, it's not that reason that they've been brought
0: on. Yes. And although I think if we look back at David Cameron's own statement, so he, the, the, the line, so the company at the heart of this is the now defunct Greensill Capital. And yeah. during Mr. Cameron's six years as Prime Minister, Let's Lex Greensill uh, worked as an unpaid advisor inside the Cabinet Office, developing a policy to ensure smaller firms were paid more quickly, a scheme that benefited his company at the time. Now, Mr Cameron says he was brought in by the late Baron uh, Sir Jeremy Haywood to fill that role. Sir Jeremy Haywood sadly is no longer with us um, to answer for himself in that role. But David Cameron insists that he only met with Lex Greensall twice. and But Lex Greensall still had a table in the Cabinet Office, a government email address, and described himself as an advisor to the Prime Minister. Now, if that's sounding a little bit like uh, Adam Werity and Liam Fox from a few years ago then that's another potential scandal that we can mention there as well fast forward to 2016 mr cameron leaves office under the terms and rules set out he is required not to seek any roles in which he could use his influence to bear for two years after that so from july to um 2016 to july 2018 he doesn't do that in august 2018 One month after that ban expires, he takes a job as an advisor to Greensill Capital. And there have been several examples of how he's tried to lobby the government on their behalf. Uh, First of all, it was revealed that he had texted the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, to ask for the company to be included in a government-related loan scheme, also approaching senior officials and Treasury uh, ministers as well. And he also had a private drink with Mr Greensill and Health Secretary Matt Hancock in 2019, to discuss a payment scheme for the NHS that was ultimately taken up and rolled out. Now, Greensboro Capital is has gone def- has been defunct now. It has been a big lender, for example, to Liberty Steel. So there are 3,000 jobs there that are under threat as well. So there is this sprawling web of connections here. The issues at the heart of it, though, are this. One, an issue of accountability. Mr Cameron was not advised to declare these um, appointments and the existing system and safeguards are not sufficient to cover his activity there is a government register of lobbyists but it only covers consultant lobbyists like myself and this isn't just a case of sour grapes you can go onto the prca's website and actually see that they want regulation to be toughened up that at the moment your activity is only covered if you lobby for example permanent secretaries or ministers while there are special advisors Senior civil servants all the way down the grades who are lobbied, you know, through what you might call the proper channel. So we're talking about departmental emails that can be subject to FOI requests. I would submit that the former prime minister texting a chancellor who was first elected under his administration is not a proper and transparent thing to do. Secondly, there's a question of how Mr Cameron is deploying his influence as well. Now, since leaving office, he has taken up a variety of roles. He is the chair of big society capital for example which is the last vestige of, and the um the, all of the main schemes that sort of the vestige of his um uh, big society initiative from 2010 but he's also the president of alzheimer's uk now i suspect fewer people would have batted an eyelid if mr cameron had been using his unpaid role there to take on and lobby the government to advance the cause of research for alzheimer's which you know there is a case of prioritization and causes here Now, Mr Cameron in his statement insists that he was paid largely in terms of shares, but that uh, those could have been worth up to 60 million pounds for this. So why is the former prime minister choosing to work for a business when he could be lobbying for say a charity, which might be a more worthwhile use of his time and a more wide reaching cause than simply payment systems. It could just be that David Cameron woke up one morning and suddenly had a great passion for payment schemes. I don't want to judge. Lastly, there is a question of the robustness of the rules. And he mentioned there. it was found out that a civil servant called Bill Carruthers, who worked as the government's chief procurement officer, took up a part-time job at Greensill Capital as well, while he was still on the civil service payroll. This was signed off by his boss, John Manzoni, who was the government's chief operating officer in the cabinet office as well. The existing rules are nowhere near good enough. I mean, that sounds to me, almost more scandalous than what
1: Cameron's doing, which as you point out, sort of, is in a long line of similar things. But the idea that an existing civil servant can have an outside role as well, does seem to me to
0: be an extraordinary conflict of loyalty. The existing, the, the response for this has been very interesting. So. The uh, cabinet secretary, Simon Case, has asked that all governments, ordered all senior civil servants to declare second jobs by the end of next week. This is on top of an existing debate about MPs having outside jobs. Now, to be clear, I think an MP who works, say, for example, as a GP, or even, for example, the former attorney general, um, Sir Geoffrey Cox, was notably a a practicing barrister as well. Mm. I I think maintaining a professional interest in a relevant field is... Good. What the? Yes, lobbyists- we don't want
1: politicians who only ever have only ever
0: had experience of politics. Exactly, and I think actually having people in public life who actually have an interest. For example, um, Ian Lavery is the former president of the National Miners' Union, for example. And we had a big backlash against people like the so-called spadocracy, which is the dominant feature mm. of Mr. Cameron's time, when he, Nick Clegg, and Ed Miliband all had very similar backgrounds and all worked in Westminster. Now. I work in that space, and there is a skill set that can be applied there, and you know used to engage with, and no one's saying the British system of government is nowhere near as open to, um, receptive to as the the EU is in terms of like, you know, as a corporate lobbyist that work in Brussels. I make no judgment whether that's a good or a bad thing. What I do have an issue with is that Mr. Cameron has clearly taken on this role. Uh, and operated through some quite uh, unclear channels, private drinks and texts are not the best way for this. I, I can tell you as, as candidly as I can be, when I'm working on behalf of my clients, we'd operate through clear channels. We are very clear about who we represent, what we are seeking, why we want a meeting. And to be honest, it would be great if departments actually publicize that information, you know, for senior civil servants, they met with this, this company on this day or this organization on this day, and this doesn't just cover private companies, it covers charities, it covers trade unions, it mm-hmm. covers campaign groups as well. There is so much more to be done here that, that, that could make the process of professional lobbying. So it more sounds as transparent. It,
1: it sounds as if what you feel is is complete openness and transparency is possibly the only way to go. Because the last thing we want is for lines of communication between government and business to be outlawed. I mean, that would be absolutely crazy, presumably, because you do need communication between both sides.
0: Well, let's look at this away. Oh, say we said that nobody could lobby government at all. Now, lobbying, now I fully accept lobbying is a very nebulous term. It, it covers, you know, and I think the facetious definition, to be exact, is to compare, say, what Mr Cameron did to somebody writing to their MP. Because, quite frankly, who is the MP going to spend more attention to? The former leader of the Conservative Party, and Prime Minister, or one of their constituents? It should be mm. the constituent, but in practice, Mr Cameron's yes. access and influence will carry... A bit more weight and actually i think arguably if that if that's deployed for a worthwhile cause and that again that's in the eye of the beholder if, for example his presence of alzheimer's uk or gordon brown's work as an unpaid uh advisor and advocate for global education at the un even tony blair here and i'm gonna this is gonna be a controversial tony blair did earn a lot of money but he then set up a foundation that he campaigns for issues that he believes in now Whereas Mr. Cameron, but, but
1: every civil servant and every politician, of course, has their mind on the fact that eventually they will no longer be a civil servant or a politician and they need to go out into the real world. And of course, you know, if they can scratch a back or two now, maybe they'll be allowed to get on the gravy train later, must presumably be how some of them think.
0: I mean, there is a difference, I think, here between we have to admit that the security of employment for a politician is a lot less than that for a civil mm-hmm. servant. I know a lot of civil servants as well. Um, you know there is there is a greater degree of job security there um and you know the pensions too uh politicians do have that receive ministers can earn uh upwards of a hundred thousand pounds while they're in office as well and they can you know but they can also lose their jobs at short notice too so i think i think that the salaries that ministers receive are, are very fair this is the case for having i think well-paid well enumerated uh salaries for expenses and MPs because it removes the temptation to seek outside money. And also, I believe, honestly, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And I think this is how I felt for a long time. Let's just take one example here that there is nothing in Sydney. This is this, this person, I think, perfectly encapsulates the problems which underline, uh, underpin all of the uh, issues in the Cameron story. And it's Chucker and Munna, the former um, Shadow Cabinet Minister and Lib MP. Now, I should say at the start, I am not simply Mr and Munna out here for any particular... Uh, bad examples of the behaviour, but more because he represents a trend that has existed. Mr. Munner started off life as a well-paid city lawyer. He then became a Labour MP in 2010. He then held a variety of posts up until 2019. And then he moved back into the private sector again. Now, this is symptomatic of two things. One, we want people coming in from outside politics who have outside influences. There's arguably too many lawyers and accountants that come in, draw from certain fields, and I prefer to see, you know, a greater cross-section of society represented. For example, you know, Nadia Whittam, the MP for Nottingham East, is a, for, a care worker still. Having her perspective in Parliament would be fantastic. You know, other MPs, I'm thinking of Zara Sultana, who's a pharmacist, for example, from Coventry, and Ian Lavery from the from the miners union. Mm. But you also got people from business, every walk of life who can come into Parliament and use that work to inform their experience. So actually having a career before you become an MP, in my mind, or, or a peer, is a good thing, certainly for MPs. However, if you, Mr. Munner came in at a comparatively young age to become a politician, which is something, the trend, that again, has happened with Mr. Cameron, an MP, Prime Minister in his 40s, out by his 50s, and he's still got a good chunk of his career there. What do you do? Now, some MPs, like the former Labour MP, Paul Sweeney, had to go to the food bank. They don't all walk into well-paid, well remunerated roles. And I would stress that, actually, it is my firm belief that the majority of parliamentarians... Actually, operate within certainly MPs are in politics for the right reasons and actually want to make a difference. But the issue then becomes: what do you do when you're no longer an MP? You know, I I, I work with four MPs who are now lobbyists, and that's all within the rules and all allowed and all above board. And they're actually making you know that they 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 follow the principles and have a you know, and they're they're not to be bracketed with Mr. Cameron on this. But if you're a former Prime Minister, you have access and contacts and inter and knowledge of the system that's unparalleled. you been at the top of the tree now to my mind it should be a given you know you can do the speech circuit and earn good money doing that but if you're bringing that influence to bear that insight to bear for a private company where you're being paid tens of millions of pounds just for that access and that that is cut that clearly for that but that is wrong mm,
1: yeah
0: and that's not how in my experience of certain lobbying how it works for the most professional lobbyists It's actually more about transparency and the sector holds itself to a higher standard than the government. Mm expect of it, which is astonishing to me. Mike, we need to take a quick break. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
1: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Gratcho Tendency blog, and we're discussing, of course, um, the... uh, Greensill um, scandal and the whole business about lobbying. Um, you mentioned earlier the MPs' expenses scandals. Now clearly that had a big resonance with the public simply because it was so easy to understand. If you're claiming for a duck house, well the first question is what on earth is a duck house? Um, but the second question is you know, why are they allowed to claim for a duck house? But perhaps something like Greensill maybe doesn't have as much resonance with the public because it's just a little bit difficult, more difficult to understand. Most of us don't live in that world.
0: Yes, and I'm aware that, and I I have become aware of this because I I am somebody who works, has worked in Westminster now for 10 years in and around politics. I have interacted politicians. I've gone for drinks in parliament, just, you know, with friends and things like that as well. And it it is a cozy little village in its own right. I wouldn't, and of of course the waters, because, because Westminster is such an interesting place. And I say interesting in the sense that it's, it's fascinating to be part of, you know, it's its own little ecosystem, particularly parliament the waters can seem quite murky when in actual fact it's more to do with a lack of um, clarity, but the closer you swim and argue, the, the clearer it becomes. And you said, I certainly don't feel, don't believe in the time that I've been working that you know, most activities I've seen. In fact, none at all. have seen um, what you might call them as dodgy or criminal, but in 2014, the government introduced some largely toothless reforms to the uh, the process of lobbying and it required that organization so there are there are agencies out there who can be employed i work for one of them myself and i, I think very highly of it and it's you know the, the, the ethics and standards to which it holds itself to one of the main reasons why i'm very proud to work for for the agency is um th- that they have to register any c- contact that the clients that we have lobbied on behalf of mm-hmm. have with um ministers and permanent secretaries so the very top of the trees here. But that barely covers a fraction of the activity we do. I think, as a whole industry, those of us that are members of the PRCA and other professional associations want—and I include in this—you know, there are there are you know, you know, two or three other groups as well, including the um, the CIPR, this is Chartered Institute for Public Relations, who have a public affairs section as well. The, the codes of conduct here are very clear about what you should and should do, and one of them is you know you have to operate in a transparent way. You have to. Declare openly subsumption ministers who you're meeting, and actually, the self-declaration that we issue, the register the PRCA has, is actually more comprehensive than the one held by the government, and that seems absurd to me. It should be the other way around. It should be government holding up. But it's the same with press regulation as well. You know the government tried to regulate the newspapers and actually newspapers end up going down their own route. But we can't, I'm not saying the industry isn't capable of policing itself. That's, I think it is actually doing a rather good job at the moment, but there are still a section of lobbyists who can choose to ignore the code. And this is where we need the statutory function to be decoded. David Cameron's of course going to insist that the office, um, the registrar of consultant lobbyists has exonerated him, but the, the rules are largely toothless because he's technically counted as an in-house lobbyist who are, are not covered by the rules. Now, some people might say oh he's a consultant lobbyist here he's this is just a case of sour grapes but what do in-house lobbyists have to fear from their activities being recorded in fact if anything it would improve transparency it would show people out there quite clearly which influence has been exerted on government thinking and policy and i can't think of anybody with anything you know with nothing to hide who would oppose that at all yes. you know this is one case we're actually shining the light of day on it and if mr cameron had any had any smarts about him He'd have done what Tony Blair did in relation to the Freedom of Information Act to admit, actually, they could have gone a lot further. That it was actually was a mistake that they should actually have embraced a different set of reforms. And, and actually, in hindsight, he says, I, I campaigned for this. I was, you know, I called this out a decade ago. What I did was wrong. It, it, it wasn't within the rules. And I actually think I've changed my mind on this, but he hasn't done that. And unfortunately, he's come out rather on the defensive. And so what about the general... Public though, I mean,
1: do we think that they're getting very worked up about this? I know clearly the opposition um, would love to make a lot of fuss, but that doesn't necessarily mean
0: that it would resonate with the public. I think this has the potential to be. A very, at the moment, no. To be honest, there is a poll. Poll shows that only around one in four people are paying attention to this, and that's probably due to the the complex details of the story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the characters. Even I find it difficult to follow. To be honest, and you know, and I've been. Yeah, following it, a in great interest because it obviously very much within the sphere in which I, I work and spend my time. The um the interesting thing is though that you you will remember this better than I did, but the major government of the 90s was largely hobbled by allegations of sleaze, and I think actually. There's a certain element of the Tory party to whom it's easy to pin this on. Now it should be said that these scandals have affected both Labour and Tory at different times. Uh, the former Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, was caught out in a anti-lobbying sting at the end of his time in Parliament in 2015. Probably a reason why he isn't in the House of Lords, actually, and as was the former Foreign Secretary, uh, Sir Malcolm Rifkin. So the at the moment, no, but I think if Labour are canny they can build themselves up as models of integrity here. And I think because the, the Tories have been in office for the last 10 years, it's that access and influence that is going to matter a lot more here. Uh, bear in mind at the moment, we've had three prime ministers in the last decade. Um, one is still an MP in Theresa May. David Cameron, however, is outside Parliament and didn't stick around long after an MP as well. Mm. Same as Tony Blair. The conduct of Mr Cameron, I think, is unbecoming of, of the other people who've held his office because... Other people can go off and participate in projects. But you don't I mean, you don't have to imagine, for example, that if Boris Johnson gets into a sticky situation, there are a certain number of people who've been in that seat um, who he can call, probably about five of them, and who, and even less will take his calls. So he's going to speak to his predecessors about advice on the job. And actually, that's arguably a good thing because it gives you a reservoir of experience to draw on, particularly given the fact that this government has a lack of depth of ministerial experience. Okay. Talking to your predecessor actually can be a good thing. What, the only thing about this that gives me hope is the fact that David Cameron wasn't largely successful in his attempts to get the loans so um Capital agreed. Yes, and, he was
1: pretty unsuccessful at what
0: he was trying to do, wasn't he? And I don't think the, the tougher regulation about lobbying is really what the public wants. What they want to see is, it's about trust in public life. And there's something called the Nolan Principles, which are the principles for acting in public life. And I think, honestly, and this, this I'm borrowing a thing from Steve Richards, the, my favourite political columnist here. He said that there's a case for Labour to build a campaign around these as well. And keir Starmer, who, by the way, many people believe is a man of great integrity, despite the fact he, has, he is from that kind of, he's the former DPP, he's a lawyer, you know, he does come from that kind of, you know, he has moved in these circles before, yeah. but I think he has he has a nice reputation to preach himself as Mr. Integrity here. Mr. Clean. And don't forget, Tony Blair tried the same thing when he came in in 1997 as well, but was undone very quickly by the Bernie Eccleston affair, that million-pound donation to the Labour Party and tobacco That's advertising true. as well. But if Ke- but Keir Starmer, I think maybe people might believe he actually is above reproach. And if you're looking, for example, look at Trump versus Biden here from last year. Trump's murkiness, his business connections did play a part in it. Joe Biden, of course, has been around in politics a long time as well. But if you present yourself as a model of integrity... That's quite appealing in a leader, you know, you have somebody who is solid, straight but honest. I think a lot of people would find that quite appealing, but it all depends on how Labour play it. Uh, Mike, thank you. Time for us to switch topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
1: This is The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with political commentator uh, Mike Indian. I mean, so many more questions I could ask on that, but let's move on. Um, (laughs) uh, We ought to look well at at, at two of the countries within the Union, Northern Ireland and if we get time, Scotland as well. Um, So what's going on in Northern Ireland? Talking of subjects that are rather hard for most of us
0: to get our head around. I often feel Northern Ireland is, is the forgotten part of the union and it's something that we I mean by me I mean the English and in mainland Britain do not pay really nearly enough attention to. There is a very interesting series of events unfolding there in Belfast and to, to understand and explain all of it is rather um Difficult. I'm speaking to a a friend of mine just before this, because who lives in Belfast, just to get his take on things, and he was telling me that he saw the issues as being, at the moment, the main thing uh, centres on Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol which he's a unionist so he sees it as full as basically you know northern Ireland being broken off from the uk and it has presented significant problems since january as well and there's by no means certain that the northern Ireland protocol will remain intact and that underpins arguably the whole um uh, post-brexit trade deal that the government reached with the eu at the end of last year and hasn't yet fully been ratified too but there's also a um there are other long-standing concerns as well. So the uh, the lack of prosecutions following uh, the attendance of Sinn Féin's uh, leadership at the um, funeral of um, Bobby Story, who was a high profile member of that party. So we're talking about Michelle O'Neill and the president of Sinn Féin and Gerry Adams there as well. And there are also concerns about different levels of policing in loyalist versus you know, unionist communities compared to nationalist and republican areas, particularly within Belfast itself. Uh, which you know there are the the dynamics this are very sensitive and devolution of justice to Northern Ireland um, by uh, the Gordon Brown government was only achieved very near the end of Labour's time in office there's also issues alongside concerns around parading and restrictions placed on the Orange Order and other Protestant fraternal organisations over the years and also a perception that the Belfast agreement hasn't really had the same impact for loyalist slash unionist areas as well Hmm. there's a pretty complex situation going on here and the um, decision not to prosecute the Sinn Féin leadership a uh, couple of the impact of Brexit has led many unionists to feel that it's one rule for the nationalists and another uh, rule for their communities as well. And we shouldn't underestimate the fact that devolution in Northern Ireland has had a very troubled history. It was only uh, last year that the new decade, new agreement was set up to the credit I think of then Northern Ireland secretary, um, julian smith who lost his job in the reshuffle for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me now the assembly has been suspended twice in fact three times actually since its birth in 2000 and uh, in, in in 1998 with the good friday agreement as well but there have also been prolonged periods of power sharing most notably the so-called Chucker brothers dynamic of um, martin McGuinness and uh, the late ian paisley there's a new generation of leaders now in charge with arlen foster and Shirley Neil, and With Northern Ireland, it's always a tricky balance between the two and progress in the province can never be underestimated or taken for granted. But I think that the UK government has just completely thrown a grenade into the middle of that with the cat candid Northern Ireland protocol it implemented last year, which, don't forget, the wrangling was what gave Theresa May so much of a headache and I cannot help but feel had we simply opted for the backstop, measure, then things would have been, the UK went backstop when a lot of these problems would have been a lot cooler and the temperature taken down a lot as well. Yes,
1: because I've seen at a very basic level, I've seen letters from people saying that they can't order stuff from the rest of the UK. Yeah. People just simply will not deliver it to Northern Ireland. And in fact, the same letter was saying they're having trouble ordering stuff from the EU as well. Hmm. So it's as almost as they're being cut off. Completely. Northern Ireland
0: is it's in the worst of both worlds. Yeah. And Boris Johnson basically threw the DUP under a bus. I'm not saying the DUP didn't deserve it because they prevaricated and played silly buggers with Theresa May's deal. They could have voted for it and arguably Arlene Foster reaped her own reward there by bringing down Theresa May. Actually, if they'd if they if they'd swung with it they it have brought with them the right wing of the Tory party and the ERG and the rest of them on board in um, accepting that actually some degree of EU alignment actually would have been a good thing. Mm. but as it is we're stuck with this very um thin protocol that's already been threatened to be suspended at least three times it may be it beds down it may be everything will be all right but the issue is that we're only this far away from a hard border in North iron which is exactly what we spent the last five years trying to avoid it wasn't really discussed in the referendum campaign but that moment where tony blair and john major two very different politicians walked across that bridge with Northern Ireland and the Republic and talked about it should have been higher priority in the media at the time. But we were also caught up with Bob Geldof and fishing boats in many ways. We're all kind of reaping David Cameron's um, uh, folly here again as well. It's funny how a lot of things seem to be coming back to him in this podcast as well. I still
1: with David Cameron, I still just remember that time he came out of the pub and couldn't believe his bike had gone and he'd, He'd got a lock on the bike, but he just put it over a bollard that had no top. You just lift it off,
0: and that's the I just this entire Well, I think.
1: I, I'm afraid I, I I think that's that's true. He's supposedly a bright man. Now, you talked a little earlier about some of the problems caused when um, parties are in power for a long period of time. So, let us turn to Scotland where the SNP basically be ruling forever, isn't it? Since about the 17th century, something like that.
0: I, I I can't pretend to have been around in the 17th century, but I can remember a time when there were other administrations in Scotland other than the SNP, but they have come to dominate mm. Scottish politics in a way that few people expected. In fact, the biggest split is now between two different factions of the SNP, the Salmonites, who now have gone off to join the Alba party, and apologies again to any Gaelic speakers who are listening who feel mm. I've butchered that pronunciation, and then the flip side is that the there has been no staying power among the unionist leaders. So this is the SNP government seeking its fourth term in office uh, and most likely the second one in which it would have a majority. Salmond secured an overall majority in 2011, which was an impressive political achievement. Nicola Sturgeon lost a bit of ground in 2016 um, and she was on the back foot. And don't forget, the SNP have not been on the front foot the entire time for her. Tony was first minister. They lost a lot of momentum in the wake of Brexit in terms of she pressed for independence and then she had to roll back pretty quickly on that. But the the lack of calibre of opposition and unionist politicians, and I have to say there's no disrespect to, to, the, to the main man of staying power, uh, Willie Rennie, who leads the Scottish Lib Dems, who's been in power for both Salmond and uh, Sturgeon's um, time in office. But the Lib Dems are not going to be a force up there. The pro-independence forces look to make the most gains. I saw a seat projection this week that's put the SNP on course to gain nearly all constituency seats apart from a couple. Um, the list system means that Scottish Labour and the Scottish Tories will be vying for second and third place because of that top-up system. But with the Green, if the Greens join the SNP in a formal coalition, which I think is quite possible actually, you've got a, a, an almost supermajority for independence yeah. there. And it becomes very difficult for Boris Johnson to arguably withhold that that referendum any longer if a majority of Scots if turnout in the Scottish elections is high and also a majority of people vote for independent supporting parties. And again, I, I can't judge Anna Sawa yet he's the new Scottish Labour leader. I haven't seen much of him. But Douglas Ross will be hoping to take his seat in the Scottish Parliament. As well as the scratched conservatively, but I wouldn't put him in the same league as Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. She is undoubtedly the biggest political force in these aisles today, alongside, i put her alongside Arlene Foster in terms of ability and Michelle O'Neill. Um, she's streets ahead of Mark Drakeford or Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer in terms of ability. Mm. But the SNP are also having to defend a an under examined domestic record. They're a lack of progress on education. Their questionable choices on popular spending on tuition fees and the widening of the education attainment gap, the centralization of power, the starving of local government of funding and the fact they have spent some of the coronavirus funding allocated on things like free bus travel as opposed to anti-COVID regulations is something that should all be questioned. But unfortunately, as long as independence remains on the table, there is going to be a sense that if Scotland leaves the Union, then it's effectively consigning the making the same problem with South Africa had post 1994 the ANC become the one party dominant with a, it's a majority of the circuits, and then it means that it makes it harder for Labour to win in England as well unless you have another Tony Blair type figure in that category too. So effectively don't England and Scotland become one party states under that model. It's not a, an idea that I particularly relish in either case.
1: No, no, extraordinary. It, it. I mean, to somebody you know living south of the border, it's just extraordinary how little of the, the muck that could be slung at the SNP sticks at all. So no doubt it, it works in their favour if they just keep talking about independence the whole time. Um, I think perhaps we ought to talk just a, a little about the, um, the death of uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. And we're recording this ahead of the funeral on um saturday where we understand the queen will not be allowed to be near anybody else because of the covid regulations on funerals um but i do think you do want to talk about it just a little before we finish
0: yes i'm aware that yourself and tim touched on this last week so i won't um i won't uh expand too much on the remarkable life of the Duke but perhaps more to consider his view of politicians because um (laughs) Nicholas Soames was on the um a friend of Prince Charles was on Times Radio at the weekend he said he never heard Prince Philip have a, a favorable thing to say about politicians in general and I can't help but think that it'd be very tempting I think to to say the Duke was prescient in that view but I also think that the, that view permeating through society has done a great deal of damage to our body politic as well. And obviously, um, his late Royal Harness had the advantage of seeing many political leaders up close and judging their character. And it's all very tempting to say, oh, he, you know, all politicians are rotten. But at the end of the day, um, these are the people we elect to represent us. And I think the, under, the undercurrent of theme throughout all this is about the calibre of people we want representing us. At the highest point, at the highest levels of uh, our society, and particularly in the, the day-to-day decision making, as well, I, I have to say, on this on this occasion, I will uh, stick my neck out and disagree with Prince Philip about the caliber of politicians. I think that you know to say that they're all well, out for themselves is a bit cynical. There were some genuinely huge political titans that um, he came across in his lifetime, particularly in the seventies and eighties. Since the nineties, though, I think his words have rung. More true, in terms of the kinds of people they have, and I, I, would, I don't think anyone would put um, Winston Churchill and Boris Johnson in the same league by a long way. As much as Boris Johnson would love to be in the same, i to say
1: as Boris Johnson, might Yeah.
0: Well, I think perhaps there's a, there's a, there's there's something to be taken from that. That if there is a, a, a something to, that we can hope to change is that we can get back to a better calibre of governing class that the prince philip's children and grandchildren will uh, interact with and uh, as members of the royal family because at the end of the day although we have a great deal of pride in the monarchy britain is still a democracy i think we should be proud of ourselves as a constitutional monarchy and a democracy and that is only possible because of a strong and varied and interested political class and that would be a wonderful thing to come out of this
1: Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, of course, and author of the Groucher Tennessee blog. And Mike will be back talking to me again in a fortnight's time.
0: The bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.